0: This morning, I probably need as much time as possible um, for Jeremiah, because Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible by content, and J.D. took extra time to go through three books that are a total of nine chapters last week, so this could be bad, but let's go ahead and start with prayer, and then we'll get into Jeremiah and Lamentations. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that you have given us uh, so much of your revelation that you uh, desire us to know. Pray that you would help us to understand the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations this morning, help us to see what it means, how it applies to us today, and help us to gain a bigger picture of who you are from uh, both of these books this morning. So in your name I pray, amen. All right, well, as I mentioned, uh, last week J.D. covered Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, which means that we have covered a total of nine out of the 12 minor prophets. We started with Isaiah before we got into any of the minor prophets. Then we switched over and have covered nine of those minor prophets, and now we're switching back to the major prophets, because this is chronologically uh, where it picks up before we get to those final three. So over the next several weeks, we're going to go through Ezekiel and then Daniel, um, which are written during the exile, And then we'll cover some of the historical books that are also written during and after the exile, and then finish up with those last three minor prophets that are for uh, the nation of Israel after the exile. So this morning, um, as I said, we can't get into every specific passage in Jeremiah and Lamentations. Um, There's just simply too much content. There's 15% more content in Jeremiah than even in the book of Psalms. And so, just like Stephen wasn't able to go through every chapter, every verse of Psalms, we're just going to hit the highlights in Jeremiah. And you can think about today's lesson like looking at Mount Everest, where we're not going to look at every trail, every feature, every aspect of the mountain, but we are going to hone in on the high point, on the peak. And then, as I also mentioned, we're going to look at Lamentations, which is connected to Jeremiah. We'll explain that in a little bit. But before we get into the content of these books, I want to mention a little bit of the historical context that is really important for understanding Jeremiah. So as, as you can see, we have a map of the Middle East um, at the time of Jeremiah, and if you remember a couple of weeks ago, or just throughout this Old Testament survey, we've talked about um, 722 being a really important date. That was the date that Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took them into exile. So at this point, Assyria is kind of the main superpower in the world. All of this green as well as the um, yellow-browny areas um, represent the area that they were in control of at this point. So there um, they conquered Israel, they rule over Egypt, they have the entire area between the uh, Tigris and the Euphrates. But in the 100 or 150 years following um, the exile of Israel, a new superpower emerged and that is Babylon. Now, Babylon defeated Assyria and Egypt, who at this point were kind of allies, in the Battle of Carchemish, that's over uh, near the Mediterranean Sea, in 605 B.C. So this is over 100 years after Assyria has exiled Israel, and this is really the changing of the guard in terms of the superpower in the world. So in 605, this battle occurs And then Babylon goes down from Carchemish into Egypt to finish up kind of their conquering of the world. And as you notice, between Carchemish and Egypt, we have Judah. And so in 605, Babylon comes into Judah and deports the first group of Jews from Judah to Babylon. That's in 605. In that first deportation, someone that we're very familiar with, Daniel, was taken from Judah to Babylon. But then eight years later, in 597 B.C., uh, Babylon comes down again to squash another rebellion and deports more Jews, including Ezekiel. Then finally, in 586 B.C., um, Babylon came and finished up the deportation. So there are actually three different times that Babylon comes to Judah. And in that final deportation, only the poorest people in Judah were left, and that includes Jeremiah. So this is the geographic representation of that but if you're better with timelines um, in 722 again this is when Assyria conquers Israel 605 100 years later uh, Babylon takes over as the world superpower and then the first deportation in 605 the second in 597 and the third and final one in 586 BC. So normally when we talk about the different exiles we talk about Israel in 722 and Judah in 586 because that was the final deportation. So this is the world that Jeremiah lived in. This is the context for the book. All these these events that are happening are occurring during Jeremiah's ministry. And the book of Jeremiah is partially prophecy and a message of applying scripture to the people of Judah, but it's also history. Throughout the book, you'll go from Jeremiah giving a message to then a story about him delivering it and Babylon coming in, and you go back and forth. Um, And we're introduced to Jeremiah in chapter 1, where verses 2 and 3 tell us that he began ministering in the 13th year of King Josiah, which would mean that he began ministering in 626 B.C. So he's beginning to minister while Assyria is still the world's superpower, but while Babylon is coming onto the scene. And so all of his prophecy about Babylon doesn't have feet on the ground yet, But what he is saying is going to happen actually happens during his ministry. Jeremiah continues to minister until at least 586 BC because he records that final deportation. And then some of his material in Jeremiah and in Lamentations comes in the years following that. So that means that Jeremiah had at least a 40-year ministry while Judah was being consistently oppressed and deported by Babylon. All right, so that's kind of the, just the context and the background for Jeremiah. But let's find out a little bit more who he is. Uh, Jeremiah 1.1 1, 1 says that he is the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. So Jeremiah was raised in the home of a priest uh, named Hilkiah. And though we can't say for sure, his father was likely a righteous priest. In the nation of Judah, at this point, not every priest was a follower of God. In fact, most of them were not and are condemned for it. But because Jeremiah had such an intricate knowledge of the word of God and a knowledge of the law, it's likely that his father was a righteous priest who followed God, and so Jeremiah was brought up knowing the word of the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet because as he delivered his messages of judgment and exile to Judah, he often records his own lamentation and his own weeping over his homeland. He didn't have a twisted sense of retribution where he enjoyed seeing his his country, his people destroyed. He was broken over the sin of his people. He was distraught over this judgment that was coming. And he didn't enter this office of prophet on his own where he wanted to go and denounce the nation, but rather God called him and established him in this office. So his calling is recorded in chapter 1. But after chapter 1, Jeremiah begins developing several different themes. And rather than looking at Jeremiah chapter by chapter, we're maybe going to be looking at some of the biggest themes he develops. So often in the early chapters, Jeremiah condemns Judah for their idolatry and their spiritual adultery, which is a theme very common through the prophets. It's interesting, though, because in chapter 3, he says that Judah's idolatry is actually worse than Israel's. And we know from the book of Hosea, which is addressed to Israel, that their infidelity was very serious. Now, this metaphor of infidelity is very fitting because it's speaking about how Judah has broken their covenant. Just like a marriage partner who cheats on their spouse has broken the marriage covenant, so Israel has broken their covenant, excuse me, Judah has broken their covenant with God. They have been unfaithful in what they have vowed. Now, we need to remember that they haven't broken the Abrahamic covenant. It's important that it's not the Abrahamic covenant that they have broken. That is God's unconditional promise to bless Abraham and Abraham's descendants and to bless the world through his descendants. Judah is condemned for breaking the Mosaic covenant. And that covenant is introduced and described in Deuteronomy as a conditional covenant. It's something that if the Israelites followed God, if they obeyed and and kept the law, they would be blessed. And if they disobeyed, they would be cursed. The Mosaic Covenant was their means of experiencing the blessing of the Abrahamic Covenant. Abrahamic is unconditional. God says, I'm going to bless Israel regardless. The Mosaic says, okay, if this generation is obedient, they'll experience the blessing. If not, the blessing is still going to come to Israel, but it'll be a different generation. And so the Judah is cursed for disobeying the Mosaic Covenant. And as I said, the Mosaic Covenant is introduced and applied in Deuteronomy, and Jeremiah is really set in the context of Deuteronomy and the Mosaic Covenant. Chapter 11 in Jeremiah really makes this connection explicit. The first seven verses go through um, kind of a history of when God entered into the Mosaic Covenant, And then verse 8 gives the verdict on how well Judah has done in keeping the covenant. And Jeremiah 11.8 says, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did not. And so Judah's condemnation for failing to keep the covenant is one of the big themes in Jeremiah. But you'll notice in that verse that we just read, there's the reason for their covenant breaking. He says that Judah's disobedience comes from their evil heart, from the stubborn, stubbornness of their heart. In chapter 9, verse 26, Jeremiah says that punishment is coming on Judah because their heart is uncircumcised. They still have a sinful and stubborn heart, and they can't obey God. Jeremiah tells the nation of Judah multiple times that not only do they have this sinful heart, but they also don't have the ability to change it. In Jeremiah 2.22, he says, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. And in 13.24, he says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Judah's sinful heart has kept them from keeping the covenant, and they cannot change it themselves. And they knew this back in Moses' day. In Deuteronomy 10, Moses told the Israelites that they must circumcise their heart if they wanted to keep the commandments. But in chapters 28 through 30, he tells them that they will disobey. Not just that they might, but that they will. Deuteronomy 29.4 specifies that this is because God has not yet circumcised their hearts. And they realize that they have a problem that they themselves cannot deal with. So far, the outlook in Jeremiah is very bleak. We see that they have a big problem and they can't solve it. But even as Jeremiah covers this depressing content, he intersperses it with hope. Chapter 3 promises that a time will come when God will remove Judah's stubborn evil hearts. And this was also foreshadowed in Deuteronomy 30 when God promised the same thing, that a time would come when he would circumcise their hearts. He would perform the spiritual heart surgery that Judah never could. Jeremiah 5 tells Judah that God would not completely destroy them in the coming judgment, but that they did have a hope of restoration. And chapter 16 says the same thing, reminding Judah of Deuteronomy 30 again, that God would change their hearts, and restore the people after exile. But while there is hope in the beginning of Jeremiah, the main message is condemnation and judgment. And this continues in Jeremiah 20 through 33, where more messages of prophecy are mixed with a history of Jeremiah's actions in Judah. These chapters chronicle Jeremiah proclaiming to the leaders of Judah that God was going to use the nation of Babylon to judge Judah. Judah. This is really where um, he gets specific in how the condemnation is going to come. Before this, there were hints that Babylon was coming, but in these chapters, he makes it very specific. Now, for his proclamation of the message, Jeremiah gets imprisoned and threatened with death, but even as he is being imprisoned and threatened and oppressed, his messages come true. The chapters 20 through 33 take place during the reign of Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, which means that they are after the first deportation and before the final deportation. So as Jeremiah is giving these messages, Babylon is executing God's judgment on Judah. But even as this judgment is unfolding, Jeremiah again promises hope. Chapter 25 specifies that Judah would only remain in Babylon for 70 years. Unlike Israel, who was removed as a nation, the northern kingdom, Judah would be restored after 70 years. Jeremiah twenty-five eleven and 12 says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And then chapter 29 mentions the 70 years in exile as well. Verses 10 through 14 say, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And so just like God has promised back in the book of Deuteronomy, when Israel and Judah sins, they will be exiled and removed from their nation. But when they turn to him, Deuteronomy 30 says, God will restore them to their land. Is rehearsing these promises. And what was once a general promise for Israel's history is now a specific guarantee. Now they know where they're returning from and how many years it will be. Now you may notice in the section I just read in Jeremiah 29, a very familiar verse. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And many people really love and connect with this verse because it reassures us that God has a good plan for our lives. It's especially applicable at graduation season, where a lot of people are saying, okay, what is God going to do for me? Okay, well, I know he has a good plan for me. I can trust this. However, reading it in context like we just did, it makes it clear that it's really God promising to restore Judah to the land of Israel. It's not a promise for us that we can just grab out and take it out of the context. We can gain comfort knowing that we serve a God who keeps his promises, knowing that he loves his people, but we shouldn't just read ourselves into this verse and forget what it actually means when it was said. And this is an example of why we need to read and interpret carefully. If you just take that one verse by itself, yeah, that sounds like you could apply it in whatever context you would like. It's kind of like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But if you read it, if you're just reading the book of Jeremiah, I don't think that thought would come up, because you would realize that it's in the context of God speaking to his people, of restoring them from the land of Babylon into the land of Judah. So we need to make sure that we're reading carefully. But back to Jeremiah. In addition to prophesying that God would save Judah by bringing them back to their land, Jeremiah is also pointing to something greater there's a bigger salvation and restoration theme that he's pointing to. In chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. And this is pointing to something that is even greater than God restoring Judah back to their land. God was going to send a righteous king from the line of David to lead his people. And in his days, Judah and Israel will be saved. As Jeremiah talks about Judah returning to the land, there are undertones of something greater happening. And we find out more about that in chapter 31 which is really the high point in the book of Jeremiah, because this is where Jeremiah describes the new covenant. So in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, This is the high point of Jeremiah. If we didn't have Jeremiah, we would miss the new covenant. We would miss the glorious answer to the problem of our sinful hearts. The new covenant contains the way for us to be restored to God. It contains the loving and patient character of our saving God. The new covenant is so important. And this is why Jeremiah is so important to the story of scripture. So let's unpack this promise. God says that in days to come, so after Jeremiah's time, he will make a new covenant with Israel and Judah. It will be different than the covenant he made with them before, which Israel had broken. In that covenant, Israel had been commanded to circumcise their own hearts and keep the law. That's the Mosaic covenant. They were commanded to obey. But in the new covenant, God will not present the law to them and command them to obey. Instead, he puts the law inside of them And gives them the ability to obey. The command to obey is still there, but now God has given them the ability by changing their hearts. And this is the fundamental difference between the covenants. Entering the Mosaic Covenant brought commands for obedience, but no heart change. Entering the New Covenant will bring obedience because of a heart change. The New Covenant is special because God is taking it upon himself to give us the ability to obey. In the, new cov- or in the Old Covenant, it was conditional. There were obligations on both sides where God said, I will do this if you obey. But in the New Covenant, God takes the conditions on himself and says, you will obey because I give you the ability to obey. It's almost as if he's referring back in Jeremiah where he said, can a leopard change his spots? Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can a human change their heart? No, but God can This also means that everyone who is a part of the New Covenant will know the Lord. Every person born in Israel was born into the Mosaic Covenant up to this point. But not every Israelite was a follower of God just because they were part of the covenant. Certain Israelites did follow God because they believed God, and so that led to them obeying the law. But in the New Covenant, everyone will be like this. Everyone will know the Lord. If someone is a part of the New Covenant it means necessarily that they know God. It means that they trust him and follow him, and it means that God has changed their heart. So then at the end of the New Covenant, after seeing that God will change our hearts, that everyone will know God because of his work of the New Covenant, we also see that there is a promise of forgiveness of sins. In the Old Covenant, sin was atoned for by animal sacrifices, and the Israelites had to offer bulls and goats and lambs and pigeons to cover their sin. They offered for sins that they knew about, and they offered for sins that they weren't aware of, and they had to offer at least once a year, and even then multiple times throughout the year. But all this sacrifice merely covered their sin. It didn't remove it. It just covered it. In the new covenant, God says he will forgive their sin and remember it no more. He will remove it from them instead of merely covering it through the blood of bulls and goats. The promise of the new covenant is fantastic news. But what we don't have in Jeremiah is how the new covenant is going to be enacted. And we find that in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who changes our hearts, who restores the relationship with God so that we can know him, and who ultimately atones for our sin. And on the night before Jesus was crucified, he mentioned this and keyed in on this. When he's observing the Passover with his disciples, he says something very interesting. This is in Luke twenty-two, nineteen 19 through 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What Jesus is saying is that as this cup is poured out that represents his blood that he's about to shed on the cross, he was enacting the new covenant. He was initiating it and making it possible. The new covenant was inaugurated by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the cross is central to the new covenant. Now the new covenant is also why Paul is able to tell the Philippians in chapter 2 that they need to work out or produce their salvation with fear and trembling. He's telling them basically they need to follow Christ with their whole heart and obey his commands, and he can only say that because of what follows, because God is working in you. Paul is referring to the new covenant to say, hey, you need to follow God because now you have the ability to. And the book of Hebrews spends significant time exegeting the new covenant. Chapter 8 quotes the passage in Jeremiah 31 at length, and chapter 10 quotes it as well. And the author is referring to the new covenant so much because he's contrasting the old and the new covenants in terms of how sin is atoned for. Continued sacrifices for sin are unnecessary because Jesus has provided atonement by dying on the cross. Hebrews 8.13 and 10.18 summarize this message well. 8.13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And 10.18 says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the new covenant makes sacrifices for sin unnecessary. Now it's important to note that while the new covenant replaces the Mosaic covenant, it doesn't replace the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham was promised offspring, land, and blessing. And specifically, he was promised that his offspring would be blessed and that the world would be blessed through his offspring. The New Covenant doesn't throw these promises away, it actually shows how they are fulfilled. Galatians 3.29 says that if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The New Covenant is the means for God to restore Israel to their land, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And then the New Covenant also shows that the ultimate blessing to the world is Jesus Christ and the salvation that he provides. The New Covenant is fundamentally different than the old because it is a work of God in the hearts of people. This means that we enter into the New Covenant by faith alone. Romans 3 says in verses 21 through 25, "...but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it," as Jeremiah does here, "...the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction." For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This means that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ receives the rights and privileges of the new covenant. Membership comes through faith. Unlike the Mosaic covenant, where people became members through their physical birth, people become members of the new covenant through their spiritual rebirth. And by the way, this is why we baptize people who have believed in Jesus Christ rather than baptizing infants who are born to believing parents. Baptism is a sign of entering into the new covenant community, like circumcision was for males of Israelites um, who entered into the old covenant when they were born. Because entrance into the new covenant is by faith, And because Jeremiah tells us that those who were in the new covenant have had their hearts changed, their sins forgiven, and their relationship with God restored, we know that all of those people are believers. Therefore, we don't baptize infants who haven't believed in Christ because they aren't a part of the new covenant. That doesn't mean we exclude them from activity in the church. We want to involve people who are not believers here, but it means that we don't treat them like believing members of the new covenant by including them in baptism. That's just a brief aside. Now, there's one more aspect to the new covenant I want to mention. Remember back when we talked about Jeremiah 29, 11, when we read it carefully, we saw that it actually had a really specific bearing for Judah coming back into their land. We found that the context was God speaking to the Israelites. Well, guess what? If you read the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 carefully, you notice that God said that he would make the new covenant with Judah and with Israel. He doesn't say anything about the church. He says that the new covenant was for Israel. And then in the verses directly following Jeremiah 31 31 to 34, God goes on to reaffirm his promise to bring Judah back to the land and restore the Abrahamic promise of land. He says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation from me forever. Basically he's saying, if I stop being God of creation, then I will give up Israel. It's not going to happen. And then down in verse 38. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. I read that to show that there are very specific places that God is promising that he is going to restore. And so part of the new covenant is God restoring Israel and Judah to their land. So how does the church fit into this? Well, the most common way to explain this is to spiritualize these promises to Israel. This interpretation says that although the promise of the new covenant is made to Israel and Judah, it really wasn't meant for them as a nation, but for true Israel, spiritual Israel, which is everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. The promise of land is explained in a couple different ways. First, the restoration of the land was fulfilled when Judah came back from the exile even though Ezra and Nehemiah tell us how poor and piteous the conditions are upon their return. And then second, the land is reinterpreted spiritually as either the inheritance of eternal life that all believers have, or the church, or the kingdom of God, anything but real, physical land. But I don't think this is the best way to read this text. Reading it this way gives Israel all of the judgment for their sin, but none of the promises of restoration. And God says in Jeremiah thirty-two forty-two, For thus says the Lord... Just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. We can't give Israel all of the bad and then just take the good for ourselves. We have to see that God is promising to restore them. Really, we should look at it this way. Not that the church takes the place of Israel in the new covenant, but rather that we are included in Israel's blessings in the new covenant. We're talking about inclusion, not replacement. The promise is made to Israel and still applies to Israel, but now anyone who believes, whether Jew or Gentile, shares in the blessing of salvation and a new heart and forgiveness for sins. And although the majority of the nation of Israel does not currently believe in Jesus Christ and thus are not part of the new covenant, God says that this will not always be the case. In Romans eleven twenty five 25-27, Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's speaking about the current time. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Here, Paul is quoting from Isaiah, referring to this new covenant. He's saying that at some point in the future, Israel as a whole will recognize Jesus as the Messiah, place their faith in him, and enter into the new covenant. And we know that in the future, they will be restored to their land, as God promised in Jeremiah 31. And this is when Jesus will reign in Israel for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom. And all of this is because of the new covenant. We just don't see all of the uh, blessings fleshed out at the present time. So the new covenant is the high point of Jeremiah, but there's still 20 chapters left in Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations, so we've got to finish that up real quick. So back in Jeremiah, uh, chapters 34 to 45 returns to judgment. Jeremiah again tells Judah's leadership that Babylon is coming, and again he faces the consequences for his prophecies, and again the prophecies come true. He tells King Jehoiakim something that the king doesn't like, and he gets in prison, And then the priests don't like what Jeremiah says, and so they throw him into a cistern full of mud. But when Babylon sweeps through and completes the final deportation, God causes the Babylonians to show mercy to Jeremiah, and they spare him. Unfortunately uh, for Jeremiah, after this final deportation in 586, uh, the Babylonians set up a kind of a puppet ruler named Gedaliah, and then they return to Babylon. But then a group of Jews assassinate Gedaliah, and then they want to run to Egypt because of, they're afraid of the Babylonians. And they come to Jeremiah and said, hey, should we do this? Is this God's will? And he says, no, you need to stay here. Don't go to Egypt. So what do they do? They go to Egypt, and they take Jeremiah with them unwillingly. So Jeremiah ends up writing from Egypt in the final years of his life. So after recording these events, Jeremiah spends chapters 45 to 51 writing judgment, not on Judah but actually on the nations. He addresses Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, Elam, and Babylon. And this shows two things as he spends this time speaking to the nations. First, it shows that God punishes all sin. Not just the sin of Israel, but he also punishes the sin of nations that he uses to judge Israel. The second, it also shows that all nations are sinful and in need of salvation through the new covenant. And just like Jeremiah in the beginning is mostly judgment but is laced with hope, so also these messages of condemnation to the nations nations, also have hope. Uh, 48, 47 says, Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. 49, 6, But afterward I will restore the fortunes of the ammonites declares the Lord in 4939 but in the latter days I will restore the fortunes of Elam declares the Lord and what Jeremiah is hinting at is that all nations will be blessed through the new covenant and then Jeremiah ends in chapter 52 with a final recounting of the Babylonian deportation in 586 Jeremiah's prophecies have been accurate and true It also means that his promise of restoration from exile and then the coming new covenant would also be true. And for the people reading Jeremiah in his days or right after he had passed away would have seen, wow, everything he said about this judgment came true. But I can also hope about this coming restoration because I know that's going to be true as well. And then Jeremiah ends very interestingly because it records how in Babylon where they had taken the king of Judah They actually removed him from prison and treated him well till the end of his life. And this shows us that there's a final hint that God has not forgotten his people. And that God has not forgotten his promise to the the line of David. um, That he would eventually restore a righteous branch to rule Israel. But that's the book of Jeremiah. If you get one thing from Jeremiah, make sure it's the New Covenant. There's, you know, I think the teachers every week say, you should read this for yourselves. There's so much in here. That's because we realize how much that we can't talk about. Jeremiah could take you some time, but it's, it's worth looking into because there's so much more than the New Covenant. But if you only get one thing from Jeremiah, remember the New Covenant. But now let's look at Lamentations, our final four minutes. Um, we are covering Lamentations along with Jeremiah because Lamentations was most likely written by Jeremiah and it most likely comes directly after the content of the book of Jeremiah. Um, now, the discouraged weeping and lamenting that fills Lamentations is very characteristic of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 9.10 even says um, that Jeremiah, he's saying, I will take up a lament. So even, he even mentions that he is doing similar things to what Lamentations is doing. And then Lamentations 3.52-57 describes the author being thrown into a pit and then being rescued, which is exactly what happened to Jeremiah. So it seems like he is the author. Now the structure of the book is very intentional. Each chapter in Lamentations has 22 verses, or a um, multiple of 22 verses. And these correspond to the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Chapters 1 and 2 are each acrostics, where... Each verse begins with a corresponding Hebrew letter, so they're each 22 verses, and the beginning of each line starts with Aleph, and then verse 2 is Beit, and it goes down through each Hebrew letter. Chapters 3 and 4 are also acrostics, although they have more verses, and so they give either two or three verses to each Hebrew letter before moving on to the next one. Chapter 5 is not acrostic, but it is 22 verses, and so it continues the uh, poetic structure. And Lamentations was likely written soon after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Uh, The book is a lament over the mutilation of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jeremiah's homeland. It's really a lament over the destruction of God's people, where Jeremiah is pouring out his heart and saying, how could this be? How How could this happen? But in reality, it's actually about Jeremiah lamenting the sin of the people, that has led to this point. Lamentations is filled with language like we see in chapter 1. Verse 1 says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people! How like a widow she has become! She who was great among the nations. She was a princess among the provinces. She has become a slave. In verse 3, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. And it goes on and on in chapter, these are not short chapters. It seems like a book that's only five chapters would be relatively small, but it, it just keeps going, going, going. I don't know if you've ever read through Lamentations for your Bible reading or devotions, and you say, oh, it's only five chapters, and then it just draws out, out, out. That's because Jeremiah is filled with emotion over what has happened. He's not sparing words, but he's pouring forth everything that he feels about the deportation and the exile to Babylon. But as I said, what he's really doing is he is rightly responding to the sin of the nation. He's demonstrating an understanding of the nation's sin and a realization that they need God's mercy. And this is really the beginning of repentance, where he's acknowledging sin and saying, this was wrong, we need to turn from it. But he doesn't just stop there. Lamentations is not just a book of emotional weeping. Because in chapter 3, he comes to what is really the high point of Lamentations. In verses 21 through 26, he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And these truths are the rock in the midst of the storm. They are the only thing keeping Jeremiah's head above water. Sin is overwhelming, but Jeremiah recognizes that God's love is more. And this is the next step in repentance. After you've acknowledged your sin, to turn to God and cast yourselves on his love and faithfulness. And the entire book ends in chapter 5, which is an appeal that God would renew them, that he would restore them. So Lamentations is actually an example of corporate repentance. And Jeremiah likely wrote the book as an acrostic so that the people could remember it more easily as they themselves recited it and took on the corporate repentance of the nation. It was an opportunity for Jeremiah to teach them how to acknowledge their sin and turn to God. So if we didn't have lamentations, we would miss an Israelite's perspective on the destruction of Jerusalem, showing how overwhelming this event was and how intensely they yearned to be restored and saved, and we would miss an example of an appropriate emotion over sin and discipline. We would also miss a beautiful example of repentance and a high view of the steadfast love of God. So that's Jeremiah and Lamentations. It's a high point in the Old Testament because it's the culmination of the promises to Abraham and a new covenant to replace the old covenant that the Israelites have failed to keep. And it's looking forward to Jesus Christ coming and enacting that new covenant, which anyone today is who is a believer is a part of. So that's all we got. Thank you for joining us this morning.